0: So, what is the current season we are in? What is the current circumstance you are in teaching you about you? Is there any way you've come to know yourself just a little bit better? Maybe some of your upside qualities you didn't know you have, like resilience. Maybe some of the downside factors you haven't wanted to admit you have. We're working our way through the life of the great King David. A key leader in God's story. The story that God is pulling off in history, through history, for us and in us. Regardless of how it looks at any given moment. A man who sought to live life with one overall motive. David said, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Wouldn't you like to live with a a not be shaken kind of confidence and peace and security? One reason King David was chosen by God to be his king was that God saw him as a man after God's own heart. Not a perfect heart and he knows it but a man who, well, is is willing to have his heart tested. David writes in Psalm 139, when when he's finally through the long journey of being a fugitive from a maniac, narcissistic King Saul, it's over, he's proven himself faithful, and he's now at the top. He is on the throne. But knowing the tendencies of his heart that he had learned through this journey, what does he say? He says, search me, O God. Know my heart. Test me. Know my anxious thoughts, my disquieting thoughts, literally. The thoughts, the thinking patterns that lead to my anxieties. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me into the way everlasting. That's the prayer of someone who's been through the dark tunnel and is now in the light. Through the furnace of testing and has now proven... He's still saying, Lord, I know there are ways that my heart can lead me astray. It's what's in here that causes me to react poorly. Isn't that amazing? Let's turn to today's episode in the story of King David. 1 Samuel chapter 24. If you have your Bibles, turn there. It's in the Older Testament. If you have your Bible app, look it up or download the Bible app. If you're on your computer, just on the right-hand side on the bottom, if you're online, is a a Bible Bible app right built into the church online program. We're going to work our way through a huge, huge heart test that David faces and passes with flying colors. It's a crucial, a central test in living a not-be-shaken life. David doesn't always pass this test, by the way. He did not pass it when he started running from Saul in chapter 1, and it led to many innocent people being killed. And he will not pass it later on in life when he gets more mature, when things are going well. And once again, it will have a huge impact on others. But in the experience we look at today, he passes it with flying colors. What's the core test? Well, we could look at it from a number of angles, but the bottom line, David passes the control test. Maybe it's just me, but I, I think a case can be made that the encounter we will look at today is the peak moment in David's life. It is David at his absolute finest moment. David faces the control the control freak in here, and he wins. Know any control freaks? Don't turn your head. Focus on the screen. Don't flinch or blink. That would be body language for busted, okay? See if you can identify with any of these lines. What? Total control freak? Total control freak? You're saying that like it's a bad thing. You ever thought that? I'm not really a control freak, but can I show you the right way to do that? Whoops. I'm not a control freak. As long as everything's done right, I'm totally flexible. (laughs) Okay, and that's somewhat more defensive. Just because I'm a highly focused, driven, motivated, extraordinary, and inspiring leader does not mean I'm a control freak. And yes, you may take time out to listen to my advice, and no, you may not do things your way. Okay. I love the one. Funny how you never realize you're a control freak until things are out of your control, and you freak. Here's the view from the other side of the fence. If I was meant to be controlled, I would have come with a remote. I shared that line with LaDonna this week, and she laughed and said, do you know how many times I've actually wished I had a remote control for you? I said, "Uh, okay, is that a statement about you or is that about me? You see, the control thing is, is way bigger than we realize. It's so central to who I am as a human being. It's an essential part of who we were created by God as humans to be. We were created to what? To rule over everything under God and for God. What is rule about? Well, it's all about control. But when all of that went south, because we did not rule under God, we wanted to be God, every single one of us will struggle with control issues in our life in some way. It is us. I was sitting one day many years ago in the dentist chair. As the procedure was about to begin and I was trying hard to do the mind over matter thing, the very experienced and wise dental assistant handed me the suction tube and said, here, why don't you take this? And she showed me how to flip the lever to turn the suction on and. And then she said anytime you feel you need to just use it we'll be ready I thought cool I feel better already and then she said it you know it will help you feel a little more in control I had a lot of time that day to think about that comment did she do that just for me or does she do that for everybody I thought about how, how much of the trauma of sitting at a dentist's chair was about Control, feeling out of control of what is happening to me in a very vulnerable situation. And I left with a whole new level of insight into and respect for the challenges of being a dentist and realizing that in every experience in life, control issues are more of a factor than we recognize. Okay, we get the picture. Let's look at David. David has been totally out of control of his own life and destiny for some time now. On the run for at least four years at this point, as out of control Saul and is very much in control of David's circumstances, doing everything he can to find and kill David. David now has a a family he's responsible for. He has a growing team that he's accountable for. And they are getting tired of running, tired of being homeless. And if something isn't done soon, David knows it's going to be like, sorry, bro, we love you, but we can't take it any longer. There's a lot of pressure on David. And finally, David gets the opportunity to take control, to take things, well, literally into his own Hands. Remember that phrase that's been a thread through the last few chapters? It starts back in chapter 23, verse with Saul, who can't can't find David in the open wilderness, discovering that David is helping people in a walled city, and he says, Got him. God has delivered him into my hands. What is into my hands all about? It's all about control. He's mine. I own him. David is on high alert and he's warned by God to get out. Chapter 23, verse 14, day after day, Saul searched for him, but God did not give David into his hands. It ticks Saul off and his pursuit of David just gets more intense. All of David's resources are now being focused on one thing, getting rid of David. But God has these creative ways of protecting David, the last of which that we saw is is that just as soon as it seems David has walked into another trap, someone tells Saul, Saul, you got to go. The Philistines are now attacking your turf. And Saul leaves. And so we end chapter 23, verse 29, with this statement. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of Engedi. Why Engedi? Well, Engedi was known for for its oasis, it's, it's, a, it's a, a, an oasis in the desert very close to the sea. He can stay there for a while until the storm passes and, and have the water he needs. Why in Getty? Because it's surrounded, it's a rugged wilderness and, and it's surrounded by tough, to, it's, it's tough to get into and when you're in it, you're in control. It, it's, it's tough for your pursuer to get into. And what's David's go to hiding place? A cave? The hillsides. Well, actually, the cliffs of Engedi are just dotted with caves. It's like pick a door, Saul, but be careful. Wrong one, you're in trouble. Right? Engedi is the perfect place for David to hide. And so, we come to our episode for today. He's in the wilderness of En Gedi, uh, 1 Samuel 24, and Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines. And he was told, David is in the desert of Engedi. So Saul took 3,000 able or choice or chosen young men, outnumbering David like six to one, 3,000 men, from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. This time, he's gonna get them. He came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there and Saul went in to relieve himself. That means exactly what we think it means. And right now is one of those times my wife is wishing she had that remote control for me. She's praying, please, God, help him to control the urge to paint this picture more vividly. I know he has stories. This is not the time. Okay, you get the picture. But it just so happens that of all of the caves in En last half of verse 3, David and his men were far back in this cave. Some of these caves were, well, they're about the size of an auditorium that could seat about a thousand people. Saul is just enough into this cave that his men, that that he's out of the, the bright daylight his men are in and they can't see him. But David's men are in the real dark in the back of the cave and their eyes have adjusted to the dark and they can see it all. As if the spotlight is shining on Saul, the one who thinks he has control is put into the most vulnerable position possible the one for whom appearance of control is everything, for whom image is so big, is put into the most embarrassing position possible. Saul, the one on the throne, (laughs) is now totally vulnerable sitting on, on the throne. Can you imagine what's going on inside the heads of David's men? First, they can hardly keep themselves from laughing, I'm sure. But very quickly, they see, the opportunity they have all been waiting for. Verse 4, the men said to David, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Hmm, where did they get that from? It's not recorded anywhere. It's, it's, it's agreed that most likely they've put their own spin on some of the things that they have heard. We're going to hear one of them in a little bit. Put together two statements maybe, maybe and come up with an interpretation that suited them. Because, well, that's what we do. But they are right about one thing. David does now have an opportunity to take control, that's exactly how his men see it, and that is how David sees it, and how David makes sure Saul sees it later on. Verse 10, Saul, God delivered you into my hands. The question is, how will David take control? What will David do when the control of his own life and destiny is put into his hands? This is not a chapter that wraps the whole control thing up into one neat little bowl with three steps to making a decision, three things to deal with your control issues. What it does do is it surfaces some control tests and questions to reflect on. As we have the desire to take things into our own hands or or maybe as in David's case, the opportunity to finally take control of things that we have wanted to for so long. Some of us don't know where this is going, some of us do. But if this scene was put into a movie, at this very point, the action would freeze. There would be this extended dramatic pause as we'd be taken into what is going on in David's mind to help us realize that David has a fundamental question to ponder that we do not ask ourselves enough. His friends are saying, David, this is your opportunity. Can you not see how God has opened this door for you? David, it's so obvious. David, you dealt with Goliath by yourself. Can't you see the the symmetry here? What do you say to Goliath? Remember David? God will give you into my hands. I think this is what they are quoting. This is even more obvious. Even easier than Goliath, David, just one stroke. And we'll have world peace. But David, young David, tired David, under huge pressure, David, out of gas, David has the discernment, the insight that even some of his more mature advisors do not. David has the insight to ask himself, Is this really an opportunity from God or is this a test from God? We don't know everything that went through David's mind, but as as the story is told, it's it's clear that one of the things we need to think through way more than than we do, especially in a culture, in a time of history, when we have way more control of our personal destiny than, than people at any other time in history and many places around the world. And when we are taught that taking charge of our own life is the most important thing. In this kind of culture, often open doors are just as often, and maybe more often, tests, temptations, as they are opportunities. Folks, there's, there's two lines we, we use that, we, that, that should be huge caution flags in our minds whenever we say them. And somebody said, why'd you do that? We say, because I can. Because the opportunity presented itself. Is That is not a good enough reason, folks. Or we say, because I deserve it. That's an even more dangerous reason. Or we say, see, this is a sign. Folks, that is so flimsy. We, we actually make jokes about it, but, but it's a self-conscious joke, isn't it? Whenever someone says, God gave me a sign, I am very tempted to say, so how do you know you, need the, you read the sign accurately? How do you know it was God that gave you that sign? If you look back, honestly, how much pain for yourself and for others might you have saved yourself from? If you had more seriously asked yourself, is this an open door to go through? Or is this a temptation to resist? A test to determine whether I'll stay the course and not be distracted by a shortcut. How long David processed that, we don't know. It can't have been too long because, well, Saul is still sitting there. And David pulls out his dagger, leaves his men, and swiftly and silently moves towards Saul. I can just see his man, can't you? As David reaches for his dagger, they're going, yes, one stroke, and the story changes. But, it says, then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's rope, and he let him go. What? What in the world is David doing? What's going on in his mind? Well, for some reason, David realizes that the biggest control battles in life are fought when things are in our hands. When we have a choice to write the story, to make it happen. I don't think it could be said better than than J.S. Park says in his book on David. That the choice David makes, the perspective David adopts, the heart posture David takes is this. I will trust God for the better story. David takes the circumstance that has been put into his own hands and he sees it as a test. Will I really totally entrust my life into God's hands? And folks, at the heart of it all, that is the central issue we need to process always. How can I trust God for a better story? How, in this situation, do I need to put what God has put into my hands and say, no, I'm putting it back into your hands. Can't you just see David's men? David, he was in your hands and you let him go. David, what are you afraid of? (laughs) If you read the Psalms, especially Psalm 34, you know what David would have said to that one. Man, it's not about fear of Saul. It's about fear of God, right? Yeah, but David, where's your faith? Where's your trust in God? Don't you remember Goliath? Don't you remember what you said? This day, the Lord will deliver him into my hands. The battle is the Lord's. He will give all of you into our hands. David, where's your trust? How would David have answered that question? Does that question sometimes mess with your head? (laughs) When it it comes to you from someone as a a sort of a, a, a pious challenge? From someone who for their own reasons need you to do something right it's even worse when it comes from your own heart why can't i have more faith i don't know but it seems to me that what david would have said to that question is that for him it took more faith to spare saul's life than it did to take goliath's life Leaving things in the hands of God is often a greater act of faith than claiming a miracle from God, especially when they're right there in your hands to control. Now, let me say again, this, this account is not a template for every situation, but it does surface a major question we need to ask. How can I trust God for the better story? rather than taking it into my hands. Let's move on to see some of the things that might mean to start dealing with our control issues by by trusting God for a better story. Some of the things that happen when we trust God for a better story. There's one thing we've seen already and that we, that, that we we have to make it more than a slogan and more than a mind game with ourselves than simply saying, well, I just trust God or I'm giving it over to God. There ha- you see, there has to be, whenever we, we say that and want to do that, there has to be a, a tangible behavior, a specific choice I make about a real life issue to declare that I am trusting God for a better story rather than taking it into my own hands. David declared his trust in God by not taking a specific opportunity that came before him to take over his story. You see, if I say no to something specific or yes to something specific for no other reason than to say to my heart, this is my act of trust in God, sometimes that's the point. And that's good enough. Sometimes you don't need another reason. It's got to be something more than a mind game, a slogan. There has to be a tangible, specific action by which you declare that you're trusting God for a better story. David's choice was not to kill Saul. It was an act of trust in God. Let's let's move on. Verse 5. Afterward, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. He said to the men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord With these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went on his way. So what's going on here? David is convicted in his heart that even though he did the right thing in not killing Saul, what did he do? In front of the men he's trying to set an example for, he makes Saul look bad. This was not treating Saul with respect. His men will now have a story they can tell, not about how David trusted God, but but how David made Saul look stupid. Oh, it's so easy to tell a story, even even a story about our faith, our trust, in a way that makes someone else look bad, isn't it? We control our own image, what people see about us, by putting others down, making others look bad. David realizes that in taking a piece of Saul's robe, the message he is sending is not, I will trust God. The message he's really sending is, see Saul, your reign's over. This piece of robe I got here, it's really mine. And I can take it whenever I want to. I didn't this time, but I can. And David is telling his men, it says that they sharply rebuked him. It's actually, that's actually a mild way of putting it literally it says he tore them apart he ripped into them don't you ever do what i just did don't you ever make saul look bad the way we sometimes put it is you never lift jesus up by putting other people down let's move on verse 8. then david went out of the cave and called out to saul my lord the king When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. He said to Saul, why do you listen when men say David is bent on harming you? This day you've seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lay my hand on my Lord because he is the Lord's anointed. See my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand, I cut off the corner of your robe, but I did not kill you. See that there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I am guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. How do I know when I'm trusting God for a better story? How can I show I'm God, trusting God for the better story? This section has several obvious indicators. When I trust God for a better story, it changes the way I see other people. Especially those who I feel are controlling me, who are out to get me, who are hurting me. How does Saul see David? Saul sees and treats David as the enemy. He's on the hunt for David. How does David see Saul? Verse 8, he calls him my lord, my king. Verse 11, he calls him my father. You see, the moment you start seeing people as the enemy is the moment you will start taking control in the wrong kind of way, at the wrong time, for the wrong reasons. The reason relationship issues escalate to the point of a battle is because we have started to see the other person as the enemy. But look what he did to me. Look how she's acting. She's against me. She's not helping me. Saul was the king. God had put him there. Even though David has been anointed to replace Saul, Saul is still the current anointed. But the truth is, well, let's go back how it all started and how it all went wrong in the beginning everyone even your enemy is created in God's image the first result of Adam and Eve not accepting that although they were the image of God they were not God is that their son Cain sees his brother as the enemy and kills him that's what happens Because of the fall, we're all there. So who are you seeing as the enemy? Are you a David or are you a Saul? Who do you need to go to this week and say, I'm so sorry. It's not about whether I'm right or whether you're right. I realize that I've been seeing you as the enemy. Can we start again? That's one of the best concrete practical ways we can put faith into action and trust God for the better story. What happens when you trust God for the better story? Well, David does one more thing that is powerful. It's it's dangerous. It's risky beyond what we can imagine. I can't imagine what David's men think when they hear what David says to Saul next. He tells Saul, as we read in verse 10, why he did not kill him. When the Lord put you into my hands, I spared you because I said to myself, I will not lay my hand on my Lord because he's the Lord's anointed. But then... Down in verse 12, look at this. May the Lord judge between you and me and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will never touch you. David turns that one act into a promise, a commitment for the entire future. It's not just Saul, I did not kill you this time, but Saul, I want to make a commitment before you in front of your men, in front of my men, no matter how much you hunt me, I will never kill you, nor will I order you to be killed. Can you imagine how risky for David that promise is? But it's for, David, for David, it's what he has to do to prove, I will never take into my hands what is really ultimately in God's hands. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. That is the most I-will-not-be-shaken trust I can think of. Isn't it? So you want to deal with your control issues and trust God for the better story? Make a commitment that has something to do with your control issues. A commitment that symbolically declares to your own heart, I will never say that line again. I will never do this thing again. Not because it's inherently wrong, but because you don't, or not because you don't have the right to say or do it, but simply because you want to declare to God and to your own heart in a tangible, concrete way, I want to deal with my control issues and keep living by trusting God for the better story. It's not that David just shuts up and says nothing. He's pretty direct in pointing out to Saul what Saul is doing. But he does it in an invitational, pleading way. In a way that leads Saul to melt. We won't read the rest of the chapter. We don't have time to do that. You can do that. But Saul, on this occasion, melts and repents before David. David is not naive. He doesn't know and he doesn't believe that everything's going to be all right for the future. He doesn't assume that turning it over to God will deal with it from a now Saul will cooperate and I will get what I want. David does not trust Saul. The story is clear about that. Two chapters later, chapter 26, we have a story that's that is totally parallel to the story we looked at today. It's like, it's like the author took the template of this episode and laid it out, uh, laid it over how he tells that next story. Identical. God doesn't change Saul. Saul doesn't change, but that's not the point. God gives David an opportunity, an open door, to show that he will live by this commitment that he just made in chapter 24. I will never take your life, even though life isn't going my way. There's just one more thing that we need to see from this story. And then one more thing that we need to see looking ahead from the story. About what happens in us when we're trusting God for a better story. The reason David does not take things into his own hands when the opportunity is there is not just about how he sees Saul. It's also about how David sees what happens when you see someone as the enemy. Verse 13, as the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds, so my hand will not touch you. David recognizes it that what he says and does comes from his heart. You can't say, well, well, yeah, I know what I did was wrong, but my heart was good, right? You can't, you can't say that. Evil deeds come from evil hearts. But there's something bigger going on here as well. David realizes that violence just begets more violence. I love the way, once again, J.S. Park puts it in his book on David. He says, the murder of Saul would have sent a very specific message to the people of Israel that it is open season to move up the ladder, but blood. A takeover would only promote unrest and stability in Israel. That was the way the other nations did it. That was not to be the way, not the way it was to be done with God's people. It's not good to win people by killing their king. David knows that if he did, he would open himself up to someone else doing the same thing to him. Stuck in a kill or be killed cycle for the rest of his life. There was no guarantee Saul would change. And ultimately he didn't. But killing Saul would guarantee a runaway train of death the moment i say well i was just doing to her what she did to me well i was just responding in kind what i what i'm really saying is i am not trusting god for a better story you do not respond to evil with evil it just does not work when i trust god for the better story i will i will find ways even even just little ways that i have in my hands to stop the cycle The cycle of violence, the cycle of distrust, the cycle of sarcastic humor, the cycle of self-promotion, which is putting myself above others and start a better story to get off the runaway train of death and just in my little world, start a new chain reaction. So as we wrap it up, let's zoom this out to the bigger story that David points us to so clearly. The story of a greater David, the greater shepherd king, Jesus who wants us to entrust him with our story. The question is, how is Jesus inviting me to live in his story well, as I respond to this situation, Jesus who, who liked David, heard one of his own men, Peter say to him, die, you don't have to die. Not gonna happen to you, just, just take control like you can. We're with you. What does Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. Your number one concern is God, not God's plan. It's what you think your immediate needs are. Jesus, who when he'd been in the desert without food for a long time, was invited by the devil to take the shortcut and take control over what was rightfully his. But he said, not going to happen. Jesus, the one who came to stop the cycle of all evil by taking on himself the full fury of the violence of the author of evil, the one who in his death fulfills to the fullest degree the promise David believed, That God would avenge all wrong done to me and by me by taking it out on his son. Jesus, the one who gives us the ultimate reason and the pattern for trusting God for the better story, especially when we struggle with things that are not or that are out of control or when we feel we need to grab control, even when we think someone has wronged us. Let me read just two passages from those who processed what Jesus did and were commissioned by God to help us process well what Jesus did. Listen to Romans chapter 12, beginning at verse 17. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it is under your control, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap coals of burning, burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil. Instead, overcome evil. good. Peter writes about how to respond to people in our life who feel are controlling us in the wrong kind of way, who are causing our suffering. 1st Peter chapter 2, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves, Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Four, it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and you endure it? But if you suffer for doing the right thing, for doing good, and you endure it, that is commendable before God. To this you were called, because Jesus suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Got any ways in your control struggles that you need to trust God for the better story and and see it differently? Stop. Stop the cycle in, in your mind and then in your actions and try a more Jesus-like approach to it? Let's pray the prayer that David prayed in Psalm 139. let Search me, O God. Know and expose to me my heart. Test me. Expose my anxious thoughts. The things that are disquieting me. That lead to my anxieties. Expose them. The things that are tempting me to go for control. See if there's any offensive way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. In the way of Jesus. In whose name we pray. Amen.